Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, last week as we looked at the birth of Jacob and Esau, we saw how God was sovereign in that. And even the prophecy regarding the children that the older would serve the younger, we looked at how then later parts of Scripture interprets that passage in uh, Malachi, which is then quoted in Romans 9, that the implication there is that God is sovereign and He sovereignly chooses people, chooses to save some people and not others. And this morning, I want to continue on with that topic of God's sovereignty as we look at this passage from verses 27 through to 34. And yet, I want to say this. God is completely sovereign over everything and over everyone. He is fulfilling all of his purposes according to his predetermined plan and will. And no one can stop God from accomplishing his plans as he works everything according to the counsel of his own will. Yet, it is also true that man is fully responsible for his actions. You see both these truths in the Bible. God is absolutely sovereign and everything he has predetermined and will bring to pass and yet man is fully responsible for his actions. You know a theologian from Westminster uh, seminary many many years ago, he's long gone now, you know, liken this to, you know, looking at a rope that comes down from heaven. On the one side, you have God's sovereignty. On the other side, you have man's responsibility. And you are to hold both of those two twin truths together. As much as sometimes to the human mind, it might not make full sense. That is what the Bible says. They're both true. God is absolutely sovereign and he will bring everything to pass, but man is fully responsible for his actions. And and one of the things is this about God's sovereignty. God is so sovereign, even over the choices that human beings make, that even when human beings sin... Even through that, God is accomplishing his predetermined plan and purposes. Now let me take you to two passages before we look into Genesis 25. In Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 7. You know, in, yeah, you have that up there. In Isaiah 10, 5 through 7, 
what God says is that he will send Assyria to attack his people. To attack the people of Israel. And yet, nevertheless, God says a woe to Assyria. That's what he says in verse 5. Woe to Assyria. Even though in verse 6 it says, I send him. And why can God do this? Because then if you look at verse 7, it says because Assyria is acting according to their own evil inclinations. It is in their heart to destroy. So you see that? So God is sovereign. God is not coercing some, this nation to sin. And yet he had predetermined that this Assyria, even though it's their intentions, that they would be the instrument by which his people would be disciplined. So in all this, God is not being sinful, nor is he the author of sin. Let me take you to another passage. This, I'm sure many of you have heard this, Acts chapter 2 and 23. Acts 2 and 23. This is Peter preaching, and in his great sermon there, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, This is what he tells the Jewish people around. He says, This Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So on the one side, God's sovereignty. He was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan. But on the other side, he holds the people responsible for their sinful actions. You crucified and you killed him with your lawless hands. You see that? Because what they, what, from a human perspective, what evil men did to crucify the Lord Jesus, they did of their own volition. They made that choice to sin. They weren't coerced. And yet, it was also part of God's predetermined sovereign plan. So I want to be clear. God is not the author of sin. He will not tempt people. There is no evil in Him. He is light. There is no darkness in Him. Yet, in the sovereignty of God, while He predetermines everything, He still holds man responsible for his actions, including their sinful actions, even though he will work through those things. Because no one is being coerced where someone is being, you know, against their own uh, choices and forced to go in some way. Those people who crucified Jesus wanted to do that. They were not pushed to do that. They wanted to do that. And so this morning we will see something of the working of God's sovereignty as he works in the choices of man. And particularly in the choices that the individuals in Isaac's family make.
I've titled this morning's message as God's sovereignty in the choices of Isaac's family, and we'll look at it under two headings. In verses 27 and 28, we'll look at how this works out, God's sovereignty and the choices of the individuals in the dysfunction in the family, in verses 27 and 28. And then in verses 29 to 34, we'll see the sale of the birthright, and again, see how people are making choices, yet God's sovereign predetermined plan is coming to pass. So last week we were already notified that there's a conflict between Jacob and Esau, if you remember. In the womb, they were fighting, they were clashing, they were knocking heads, so much so that it was troubling their mother. And God had said, this is just a, a, a preview of things to come. That there would be conflict between these two brothers and from these two brothers would arise nations. And, and by the way, God says, the younger I have chosen and the older will serve the younger. And now in this passage, we'll see how all of that, of all of God's sovereign plan that he has purpose will slowly come to pass. And yet we will also see how it comes to pass through the choices of the individuals in this family. So firstly, the dysfunction in the family, verses 27 and 28. Let's just look at verse 27 first. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Esau and Jacob, even though they have the same father and the same mother, even though, you know, same gestational period, they're twins, they are polar opposite people. You know, it's like, you know, those of us who have uh, children or even our siblings, you know, we can be so different from each other, right? Or the children too can be so different one from another. What we see here is Esau, he's the strong brute, the, the rough, tough, manly man kind of guy. You know, the big, ruddy, strong, athletic, hairy guy. He's the wild, free-spirited, you know, passionate, boisterous, impulsive kind of guy. He's one of those guys who, you know, you can't contain him indoors. No, he has to go out. He's, the, he's a man of the field. He loved the outdoors, loved the adventure, loved the excitement of having to hunt wild animals. And so Esau is the hunter here. Now Jacob, on the other hand, was a quiet man, the text says. Now this word for quiet, uh, really, it's a word that's translated elsewhere as blameless or single-hearted or, or single-minded. It has the idea of being a man of in integrity. So oftentimes it's used positively in that sense. But here, I, I don't, you know, as we trace Jacob's life, I, I don't think it's being used more so in a positive sense. But here, that idea of single-heartedness used for Jacob is in the sense that 
you know, that he was calculating, you know, so focused and so calculating. So unlike Cain, who's, uh, pardon me, unlike Esau, who is impulsive and, and thoughtless about future things, Jacob is more single-minded, meaning he's controlled and shrewd and calculating about things. That's the kind of person Jacob is. And unlike Esau, Jacob was not a man of the field, but it says he dwelt in tents. Just like Abraham and Isaac who lived in tents. So it's pointing to that sort of nomadic life. And most likely pointing to the fact that he looked after the herds and the flocks. So meaning Jacob preferred a domesticated lifestyle looking after domestic animals like sheep and cattle and so on, unlike his brother who liked the taste of the wild and going for wild animals. And in fact, we'll see in a few weeks how clever uh, Jacob is as a herdsman as he starts working with Laban. And what this also means is that Jacob tending to the flocks and the herds, most likely of the family, also meant that he was close to home most of the time. Unlike his brother who would have to go on these hunts far away and would be away for a while. So Jacob and Esau, they grow up to be two very different men, both in their character and their vocation. And what these differences in these two boys as they're growing up would, would cause is that each parent then would begin to favor one son over the other. And this would further worsen the conflict and lots of other issues will come about in the family. Look at Verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, so far we've seen Isaac is a great man of faith. I mean, when he was young, he, he willingly, you know, he was willing to be uh, sacrificed by his father. He didn't run away from Mount Moriah when he was taken up as a sacrifice. When he said, Father, you know, where's the lamb? And he said, God will provide. He was just trusting God and he didn't run away from there. Then last week we saw of how Isaac prayed to the Lord for his barren wife. And he waited on the Lord and the Lord answered him. But now here we see one of Isaac's weaknesses which clouds the way he parents his children. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. See, if you trace the character of Isaac in Genesis, just in general, you know, you just observe this character and just read everything about him in Genesis. While he is a man of faith, you get the sense that he's, he's a quiet man and, and, and a passive man. And one of his big weaknesses that he had this appetite for gourmet food, wild meat, 
and his son Esau, the skillful hunter, could get him this special delicacy. And beyond that, you know, if you, if you compare the sort of person Isaac is, Isaac probably liked Esau for the kind of person he was. Because he's, because he's nothing like him. And Esau had great strengths. You know, while Esau was quiet and passive, generally speaking, Isaac was the more boisterous one, the strong one, the exciting, adventurous type who would go out and, you know, and even get him those wild animals for him. And so because of that, Isaac loved Esau. Isaac's love for gourmet food and his special love for Esau will further cause division in the family and it would cause further problems, particularly when we come to Genesis 27 and it's time to give blessings to the sons. It's his, this weakness of his and that particular love for this son that will cause even more problems. Now it also says, Rebecca, on the other hand, loved Jacob. Now there's no reason given here why, why she loved Jacob more. But perhaps it could be that you know, because she knew that God had said, oh, J- Jacob would be the chosen seed, that, that covenant line will pass through him. But I would also think, given her actions, and particularly even in Genesis, 7, Genesis 27, when it's time to give the blessing, it would seem like there were other reasons why she may have loved this boy, Jacob. It could be that Jacob was more around the home and he was clever and calculated about things. So, you know, may have been a great help to mom. And she loved him for that. Whatever the reason Rebecca loved Jacob, this kind of parental division would, would have terrible consequences and it would cause further division between the brothers as time went on. And really, if you think about it, it would seem like the parents are not shepherding the children in the promises of God. See, because Isaac knew that he himself was chosen by God's sovereign grace. He knew that he didn't deserve it, and yet God chose him to be the promised seed. And his brother, he knows what happened to his brother Ishmael. That he rejected God and went away along with his mother Hagar. And we saw all of that in the last few weeks. Isaac knew that for himself about God's sovereign grace. Isaac also knew that God by his sovereign grace had now chosen his son Jacob as the promised seed through whom the plan of redemption would go through. So what should have Isaac done as the father? He should have been teaching the children, my children, this is the plan of God's redemption. Should have looked at Jacob and said, Jacob, recognize the fact that you are chosen by God only because of God's grace. It has nothing to do with you. It's not something that you deserve. 
trust God, wait on God, and he will bring about what he has planned and purposes, purposed Jacob. And then he should have turned to Esau and said, Esau, my dear son, this is God's plan of redemption. But God also says, those who are connected to the promised line, those who bless that promised seed, they themselves will also be blessed. So trust in the God of sovereign grace and turn your eyes back onto this great God. Don't forsake the Lord our God. But that's not what you see happening here. See, the preferential treatment of the parents show that they're not shepherding the children this, this way. It's actually more of a divided house. The children, to a degree, are valued for what they can bring to the parents or what they like. Isaac, by loving his son, simply for bringing him his gourmet food, is indirectly teaching his son Esau to live for his comforts and passions and not live for God. And Isaac himself is modeling that. And, and we see, as we see Esau, he would continue to do that. That he would continue to live according to his fleshly passions. And then it would impact the kind of wives he would choose for himself. And he would ultimately reject the Lord. And then Jacob, well it seems like you know, his smarts were really held up high. He had this idea of, yes, I'm the clever one, cunning one, so, you know, I have to go and grab everything that I need to get. And so it's almost like if he knew about the promise, he saw it as almost like an entitlement. Oh, this is, this is my title and therefore I need to get hold of it because I'm entitled to this rather than seeing it as God's grace and trusting in patiently on the Lord to bring it about in his own time. And, and you know, even later on, Jacob as well as a parent will also have his favorite son in Joseph. Where did he learn that? From his parents. And that will further cause issues in that family. So parental favoritism, it'll further deepen problems for Jacob and Esau. And really this serves as a warning to all parents to know, not show favoritism to their children. You know, children come with all kinds of temperaments. Some are smart, some are athletic, still others are musical or artistic. Some are loud and boisterous while, and energetic, while others are just quiet and shy. Some love the outdoors and others just love being home. Some are super fast at getting things done, others are tediously slow. 
Some are more easy to deal with and others are a lot more rebellious and difficult. And it's easy then to only love the children who fit our kind of mold. And to show partiality to that child. But there's a warning here because that kind of partiality will reap terrible consequences. Parental favoritism can not only negatively impact the child that is neglected, but it can also negatively impact the child that is excessively pampered. Parents, what we should be doing is seeking the Lord in prayer for wisdom in how to deal with each individual child according to their own unique differences and pray for wisdom in knowing how to deal with them individually that way and then have that desire to intentionally point them back to the Lord. What you see with Isaac and Rebecca is that they have seemed to have lost their focus. And they're not shepherding their children like they should in the ways of the Lord. They're simply bringing up their children as their own individual child that they love and not according to the Lord. Famous theologian Sinclair Ferguson commenting on this verse says that, you know, he says something's gone wrong with the parents as far as, spiritually speaking, as far as Isaac and Rebecca are concerned. And then he adds, quote, the children are breathing in the spiritual atmosphere that the parents are breathing out. So that neither of the children are saying, how can I serve the Lord? The children are breathing in the spiritual atmosphere that the parents are breathing out in their homes. He goes on to quote from someone else, and he says this, quote, The most dangerous thing that a child can, the most dangerous home that a child can grow up around is not around atheists or agnostics in the home. But parents who stand up every Sunday singing the creed and the Christian confessions of the faith of Christianity and then living the rest of the week as though they didn't believe it or rely on the God they are confessing. It's all great and spiritual on a Sunday morning and yet in the home for the rest of the week it's a very different story. And children will see that. And they will pick up on that. And that's the spiritual atmosphere they are breathing in. The spiritual atmosphere that the parents are breathing out in the home. And children will pick up on it because they can see the hypocrisy with their own eyes. This is what my parents are doing on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week is quite a different story.
Now, for those of you who are parents, I know this is convicting. Trust me, it's been convicting me all week. None of us will be perfect parents. All of us will fail regularly as parents. Still, it is important to understand that we are intentionally thinking about bringing up our children according to the ways of the Lord. This is our God-given responsibility. But you know, ultimately, praise be to God. Because ultimately, the salvation of our children does not depend on us. God has to intervene. God must give our children spiritual life. He must open their spiritual eyes to the glories of Jesus Christ and what he has done for them on the cross and for them to see the wretchedness of their sin. We cannot do that. Salvation is all of God's powerful and sovereign undeserving grace. In fact, I would even say this, you know, I know that so many of you even here this morning have grown up in broken homes and non-Christian homes. And yet here you are today as a Christian who has saving faith. Why? Because God intervened in your life because of his sovereign grace. So for those of us who are parents, here's the perspective we need to have. On the one side, I cannot neglect my responsibility as a parent to bring up my child in the ways of the Lord. And if I don't, it will have negative consequences in the life of my child. It will have an impact. But at the same time, I need to realize that it is not my good parenting that is going to save my child. It is God's sovereign grace alone. So I need to hold both these things together. Man's responsibility, my responsibility as a parent, and God's sovereignty. And holding both these truths together, then I, then I am to pray regularly for the salvation of my child. And then strive to be a godly parent. And then rest in God's sovereign grace to bring about what he has purposed. So here in verses 27 and 28. we see the dysfunction in the family in that there is parental favoritism. And yet through all this, God is working out his sovereign purposes where he said there will be conflict between these two brothers. But at the same time, from a human perspective, we then shouldn't be surprised in the way these two sons are going to behave in the next section. And yet, even there we'll see, while these sons behave sinfully, God is yet again 
bringing about his sovereign purposes. So this brings us to our second point, the sale of birthright in verses 29 to 34. The sale of birthright. Now once when, verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So Esau has been out hunting and he came back from the field to find his brother cooking some stew. Now remember, Jacob is the the scheming guy, the the trickster, the, the conniving one, the calculated brother. And what's interesting is that the word that is translated there as cooking, where it says Jacob was cooking stew, that word for cooking, It's a word in Hebrew that in other places is used to describe presumptuous behavior. And it's also a word that sounds a lot like hunt. So in other words, what the text is alluding to is that Jacob is not cooking this stew, and this is not just some incidental thing he happens to be doing. No, this is a calculated trap that Jacob is stirring up. He's stirring up a trap. He's going hunting, but just in a very different way. And he's waiting for his brother to come back because he knows that's when he can get his brother. So it's premeditated, pre-calculated. And it says that Esau was exhausted when he returned. So Esau is tired, he's, he's hungry, probably physically and mentally tired. One thing that I'll say is this, you know, any kind of major deals, any kind of important decisions that we are to make, it's never a good idea to make those decisions when we are physically and mentally tired. But Jacob understands all this, and so he's cooking up a trap for his brother at this time. And look at what Esau says when he sees his brother with the stew. Verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Literally, it's, you know, what Esau says is, you know, a literal translation would be, let me gulp down some of that red red. It's not even red stew. It's it's almost like, you know, Esau's come in, he doesn't even know what's in the pot. He just sees it from a distance. He can see something bright red or something of the sort. And he's like, and he comes in, he's, he's almost grunting. He's famished, he's exhausted. And he's like, red, 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 red. I want to devour it. You know, he's almost like this devouring animal. And now Jacob, the cunning hunter, is setting a trap for this reckless animal. And the text also says that he, his name was called Edom. Aside from the ruddy complexion was, that Esau was born with, his name would become associated with the dreadful decision that he makes with 
this red, red food. And in fact, because Edom means red, and his descendants too will be called Edomites. And it would show that these people are also characterized as a people who are impulsive and a people who have no interest in the birthright, just like Esau. Now Jacob has Esau exactly where he wants him. Now he moves in for the kill. Verse 31. Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. His brother's birthright. That's what Jacob was scheming for all this time. That's why he started stirring that pot. Because he had that in mind. Now what's the significance of the birthright? Now the birthright, it usually belonged to the firstborn or the oldest son. And having the birthright meant that this oldest son would receive a double portion of the family inheritance. And this firstborn son would be then, after the death of the father, would be the head of the family. And most importantly, when you think about this family, because this is Abraham's family and that promised line family, it meant that the one with the birthright would inherit the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to be part of that seed line, to have the spiritual blessings that come with the Abrahamic covenant and and even that inheritance to the land of Canaan. So it was a great privilege to be part of this God's salvation plan. That's what this birthright particularly would signify. And naturally speaking, or humanly speaking, the birthright would go to the older son, which is Esau. Now you might be thinking, well, if God has already promised Jacob that he's the chosen one, that the promised line would continue on with him, why does Jacob want the birthright like this so bad? Now why is he doing all this? I mean, God has said he'll bring it to pass. Well, the only conclusion is that Jacob wants to take things into his own hands by his own schemes and trickery, he wants to get what he thinks he deserves rather than wait on the Lord to bring about what he has promised. So on the one side, you could say, there's a spiritual mindedness about Jacob, for sure. Because he understands the, the big thing about this birthright is this promised plan, the plan of redemption that is that God is bringing about to be part of that. But he's going about it in a very sinful way. And Jacob is taking advantage of his brother and he's even prepared to exploit his brother when he's weak and hungry to get what he wants instead of loving his brother and serving him. And even the offer that Jacob is proposing, I mean, it's a ridiculous offer. I'll give you a you know, I'll give you this stew for your birthright. I mean, it's almost like telling somebody, you know, I'll give you a small bowl of soup. Give me your million dollar house. It's a ridiculous offer. Absolutely ridiculous offer. So, 
Jacob is sinfully trying to get a hold of the spiritual blessings and it's telling something of Jacob's character. But notice now Esau's response and it's telling of his character now. Verse 32. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me then? See, Esau is now trying to rationalize his craving. It almost sounds reasonable and logical. Oh, the, this birthright isn't going to be of much use to me because I'm going to die anyway. So what use is it going to be because if I'm dead? So Esau is trying to you know, justify his craving. And sometimes this can be similar to us as well, right? Sometimes with our, with our fleshly appetites, sinful tendencies where we can it might sound logical when really it, it, it's not you know people have said you know sin makes us stupid and foolish and makes us do terrible things which is why sometimes we hear of people and you're like i don't know why that person would ever do something like that but that's what sin does and and when those fleshly appetites take take over we begin to reason and it sounds almost logical in that, in that state. But we're not considering all the ramifications of it. So the reality is yes, Esau is famished, but he's not going to die. But when you think about it, the, the birthright that Esau is willing to give up, that's God's plan of salvation. I mean, the Messiah is going to come through this line. This is like somebody saying, what use is the gospel to me if I'm going to die? What use is Jesus to me? Because I'm so hungry and I'm going to die. And I'm willing to give that up if you just give me this. See how ridiculous it is? This is everything. In fact, Esau's life actually depends on it. Now the shrewd brother Jacob wants to close the deal now, very quickly. He wants to make sure that Esau cannot go back on his word. It's almost like he wants Esau to sign the papers quickly and I want to make this binding so you can't go back on your word. Look at verse 33 and 34. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And look at what happens in the end. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. I mean, it's, it's almost like when you see in the movies, you know, there's, there's all this music in the background and, you know, different things happening. And right in the end, at a poignant scene, everything goes dead quiet. And that's this scene now. It's a very ominous scene. Esau gives no thought to what he's doing. He doesn't even linger to, you know, savor some of the taste of what he's just eaten. It just simply says, Esau 
ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went away. He simply gulped down all that food like an animal without any consideration of what it has cost him, and he just goes his way without thinking. Now what becomes clear here is that Esau is not somebody who would have died if he didn't get the stew. He's simply a man that is driven by his fleshly appetites. He's someone who lives for the the momentary, immediate pleasure. And he gives no consideration for the eternal. Now I, I just want to make one thing clear. Esau's sin is not the fact that he was so hungry and he wanted food. That's not a sin. And if you look at the Bible, it's, it, you know, the Bible repeatedly in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says it's not wrong to enjoy and satisfy our physical appetites so long as it is, it is done in a righteous way. There's nothing wrong with satisfying our physical appetites if it's done in a righteous way according to God's way. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected when received with thanksgiving. So nothing wrong with physical desires and fulfilling them, if it's done according to God's way. But the problem with Esau is that the physical desires so governed him that he had no regard for the things of God. He doesn't value the spiritual and the eternal things. In fact, he doesn't care about God's promises and God's plan of salvation. I mean, this is how, when we look at the world around us, this is how they live, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Just live for the moment. Just live for your appetites. In fact, we live in a time where the world around us, where people are defining themselves by their very appetites. You feel this way, that's who you are. And don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. And all the gender fluidity and sexual identity, all of that is based on that same fact. You are what you desire. You are defined by your appetites. It's a world where God is nowhere in the picture. And it's foolish thinking. I want you to think about Esau particularly. See, the sad part is Esau grew up in the household of faith. He's grown up with parents who are believers. He had the natural birthright and the promises of God. But he didn't care for them. In fact, he traded away the birthright and the covenantal blessings of God for the temporary satisfaction of his belly. Because he didn't care about it at all. Here's how one commentator put it, quote, The lesson certainly concerns more than a worldly, free lifestyle. 
It concerns the sacrificing of spiritual provisions for the satisfaction of the physical appetites, of the relinquishing eternal things for momentary pleasures. It is thus a matter of priorities and values." End quote. Now the Israelites, you know, as they're listening to Genesis and this portion, and they're listening to this account of Esau, it would have, the life of Esau and what he's doing here would have served as a warning to the Israelites to not forsake the privileges and promises that they have as a nation. To not forsake the Lord your God and go after your fleshly desires and follow the idols of the nations around. This would serve as a warning to say, don't go the way of Esau. And even for us as believers, Esau serves as a warning to not forsake living for the true and living God. To not forsake following Jesus. Now the Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, if you're a born-again believer, you cannot lose your salvation. Once you have spiritual life, once God has made you born again, you can't unborn yourself. You can't kill that spiritual life. That is God's work. And yet, there are warning passages in the Bible that says, you need to continue on in the faith. You need to persevere in the faith. And here's what will happen. For those of us who are believers will heed that warning to say, don't go this way, walk this way according to the way of the Lord. Follow Jesus. True believers will heed that warning because they will see the danger and they will keep moving that way. But those who are not really Christians, at some point, because of the attractions of the world or the pressures of life or the trials in life, after some time, they will actually go that way. It doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. The Bible says nobody will lose their salvation. It just means that they were not Christians in the first place. That's what Jude also says. Now we read this morning from Hebrews 12, and particularly in verses 15 through to 16, Esau is mentioned there as an example of apostasy, so to speak. See, the book of Hebrews, it's written to Christians who are being persecuted precisely because they're following Jesus. So, so they're thinking, okay, if we're being persecuted for following Jesus, then they're being tempted to not follow Jesus so that life would be better. So the author is encouraging these Christians to say, persevere in the faith. Don't trade the hope of your salvation. Don't trade eternal things. Don't trade following Jesus for some temporary pleasure because some of these pressures and persecution is coming. Don't do that. Don't abandon following Jesus so you can have temporary relief. And he's saying that was the case with Esau. 
That's what he did. And so the author is saying, you have much to lose, dear Christians, if you abandon following the Lord. So Esau serves as a warning in one sense for those of us who are believers. See, by the end of Genesis 25, what you see is what God had sovereignly ordained is coming to pass. He said there will be conflict between the brothers. That's taking place more and more. He said the older will serve the younger. Jacob will be the chosen one and Esau will not be. And that's exactly what is coming to pass. So God's sovereignty is coming to pass. But notice how Genesis 25 ends. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau is culpable. While God's sovereign purposes are coming to pass, it does not take away Esau's responsibility. Esau is still responsible for his actions. Esau wasn't coerced to go in this direction. He did what he wanted to do, not because he was a robot, just sort of going because God had, you know, purposed all these things from eternity past. No, Esau willingly chose to trade the hope of salvation for the pleasures of this world. And because of that, Esau will be rightly judged for his actions on that final day. God will be just in condemning Esau because Esau will be getting what he deserves. So while God is sovereign, man is also responsible for his actions and will be held accountable by God. And yet, even through the sinfulness of man, God is still bringing about his purposes. Now, what do we make of Jacob? I mean, he doesn't look that good in this section either, does he? Why is it that Jacob had those inclinations for spiritual things? Well, it's because God sovereignly chose him from eternity past, and that's slowly beginning to play. See, one of the things that we need to recognize is with regards to God's sovereign grace, nobody deserves it. It is something God gives to the undeserving. In fact, you know, the famous prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, that many of us know about who, you know, who was around a couple of hundred years ago, he was preaching on this topic of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You know, quoting from uh, Malachi and Romans 9. And then the, a woman in, the, in his church gathering uh, cries out during the sermon saying, But how could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon's response was, I'm not concerned about how God could hate Esau. I'm just surprised as to how God could even love Jacob. 
See, if any of us ever think we deserve to be saved, we deserve to be loved, we don't understand the grace of God. We've missed the point of the grace of God. But that's what sovereign grace is. That God, because he first loved us, we love him. It's not our smarts. It's not something that we did. But God's sovereign love, that powerful love, came and changed this stony, cold heart into a heart of flesh that beats for him. And therefore now, in response, we love him. You know, one of the things I love about this section is it highlights the fact of two things. That human love can often be conditional, like how the parents were. Yet why did God love Jacob? Not because of some special thing that he saw in Jacob. Not because he thought, oh, you know, Jacob will be great for me. I can, you know, great use for him. No, he was a nobody. He, he's just a wretched sinner too. I mean, conniving fellow, and we'll see more of his trickery over the next few chapters. No, God loved Jacob because God loved Jacob. His love is simply conditioned on himself and not in the individual human being. Now, let me ask you if there's anyone here listening this morning. If you're not a Christian today, don't despise the hope of salvation. Don't despise the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news is this, this, this sovereign God, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us on that cross, bearing the wrath of God, paying the price for our sins, and dying on the cross. And then he rose up on the third day, providing a way by which we can be made right with God. Don't despise his offer of salvation. There is a responsibility before you, unbeliever. Because on that final day, what it's, it's not going to come up as not chosen by God. It's going to come up as you stand guilty before him and you rejected him. Nobody coerced you into hell. Nobody coerced you to reject God. You are doing that by your own volition. Because of your own sin, you are choosing to reject God. And yet, today here before you is God's offer of salvation. 
that you would turn to Jesus and see the glory of his salvation and what he has done. And if you say this morning, I believe, I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he's forgiven me of my sins. Then I would say to you, turn away from your sin and continue to follow him because that is the evidence that you have truly believed in him. And for those of us who are believers, two things as we close, I want to say this. Let the life of Esau be a warning to us to not go the way of Esau, to continue to persevere and follow Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I also want to say this as we see the sovereign grace of God in a wretched scoundrel like Jacob, because that's exactly who all of us are. See, because he loved Jacob, not for Jacob, but because of God, we all have an assurance as well, right? To know that God's love for us will never change. Because it's not based on something that I do or don't do. It's not based on something you do or don't do. It's based on Him. And to know that that love will remain the same. It's a love that he has had for us from eternity past. And that love will continue to remain the same. Praise God for his sovereign grace, for his amazing grace to us through Jesus Christ.